Hello and welcome back to the Annex podcast. This is Koi again, going through a little bit of very interesting events right now in America. So I asked my roommate to come down the hall, the only person I can um, be spending any time with during COVID, and we had a little bit of chat. So please enjoy myself and Zach having a little bit of an Annex Pundits podcast. Without further ado... All right, let's bring us in. You were just about to give us a little intro. I liked it. Um, well, you know, as I said, welcome to Centerite's podcast. Uh, it's been a good number of weeks since I've been on it, but uh, since then, the world's just simply burning. Um, <laughs> we thought COVID was bad, but now you could argue the world's, well, America is literally on fire. Just and the yesterday, cities. Just the cities. Montreal was slightly on fire. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. Who knows if it spreads to Canada, but yeah, uh, we thought COVID was bad, and uh, times haven't got better. So uh, here we are with an update on the grim times of uh, <laughs> North America. Yeah, Annex Pundits with <laughs> yeah. Zach Akor. Yeah. Um, yeah, geez, I mean, we, you were on the last episode that we had, you know, because, you know, some people are very productive during COVID. Um, I think... This household has been focusing on just trying to stay alive and sane and not kill each other, um, mm-hmm. which has been a full-time job, I think, for most of us. Oh, yeah. Free people in a small room. Yeah. <laughs> House, I should say. Yeah. Like one big room. Yeah. Um, but it's true. Things have things feel like they've just gone off the deep end in the last... Um, just for like historical posterity for anyone listening to this, we're now June 1st, 2020, just finished a uh, full weekend of protests. Uh, many use the word riots around America. A lot of burning, a lot of demonstrating, a lot of um, police violence. Twitter is... I was not on Twitter until COVID. And all of a sudden, I'm on it. And, oh, God, it is like the most... It's like if you want anxiety, just turn on Twitter and just... Oh, yeah. Just n- people going nonstop, and I- even in the most obvious things, you're like, okay, this, you know, George Floyd looks like he was quite similar, like summarily executed by a police officer, and you have people who are like screaming and be like, the stupid left don't know what they're doing, and then people are like, oh, the right are all fascists, and cops driving into protesters. There's an 18 wheeler that drove into a bunch of protesters. Luckily, no one was hurt there, I think. So, yeah, where are we? How's it going, you know? <laughs> uh, welcome to welcome to the summer of 2020. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the sad thing is, maybe not COVID was predictable, but... Uh, I think it was. I, I mean, the World Health Organization has been saying for 20 years that there will be a global pandemic that will infect and potentially kill hundreds of millions of people. That's true. Um, so... I know that from from the perspective of epidemiologists, this was an expected thing. And every single uh, epidemic that we've had up until now, like H1N1 and SARS and 
all these other ones, swine flu, they were all, they all could have gotten to this point. And the world showed that there was quick response in the right way. And we got lucky. Um, but like the right thing happened. And, yeah. and I guess this shows like what happens if you're not two steps ahead of the game with a, with a viral outbreak, it can very quickly become out of control like this. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. Um, a truth, a virus was predicted by even Obama who left Trump like a whole pandemic plan. So even he saw it coming at some point. Get that mic um, in your face there. Yeah. So I, I mean, uh, Koi's point, even Obama left Trump a pandemic plan, so he saw one coming. But what was definitely predictable is uh, the world burning because of racial tensions. Adam Schiff, we were listening to it yesterday in his impeachment speech. The last five minutes was about how warning Republicans basically how this was going to happen if they didn't impeach him. And... You know, here right. we are. Uh, here we are today. So, yeah, we w- we watched that yesterday. I think it was, or the day before, the Adam Schiff and impeachment trial closing statements. And yeah, he's like, you know, this is. We we know what is it like? What are the chances Trump is going to do this again? One hundred percent. And if you don't vote this way, like you're, you're tied to the outcomes of this vote. I mean, that being said. Um, you know, name drop Bill Simmons, uh, yeah. who's like not necessarily a political pundit, but he he also pointed out, and I think a lot of people agree. I agree to an extent. Is that like, would this really be that different? Were it a different president? Um, will this be that different uh, if and when Biden gets elected? Like, uh, Obama obviously said a lot of good things when there were these mass shootings or, or civil of unrest, and he was able to kind of give voice to the people and say, you know, be charismatic and say the right thing. And I, I, I uh, am a big fan of, of how he did that. But that that is not solving the systemic issues of police violence and racial profiling and uh, institutionalized racism, and I think that's kind of the point that that Simmons and a lot of people have been saying, and it, for good reason, right? Like, the president doesn't uh, control all these things necessarily, um, and so, like, I guess the question is, like, you know, would this, would these outrests happen if uh, you don't need to hold the mic? I think it makes a bit of noise. Um, would would these outra- outbreaks be happening, like, if? If it was a different president, or like, will this will this all of a sudden be solved if Biden gets elected? I I, I think it's definitely bigger than that. Um, hundred percent agree. I don't think we're you know we're looking at Biden or Obama radically overhauling police systems or police relations with um, African American communities. That's like a you would need a major radical change candidate which neither are but saying that i think having a borderline if not a white supremacist in office stoking tensions you don't think that helps (laughs) no (laughs) helps um (laughs) is when you need calm and to give voice to community leaders to at least try to encourage dialogue is obviously 
I think, would calm things down. And to be fair to Obama, when there was actions, he did do things like call in for independent investigations into the police force. Um, Trump has stopped that. And actually, his solution has been give police more power to use like military weapons. So, yeah, Obama's not going to change fundamental policing structures or radically overhaul it, nor would Biden. But I think the, the difference is they would be reactive. Um, they wouldn't be, you know, preventative. They'd be reactive in a way Trump would. Now, you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, uh, almost a revolution. And unfortunately, I don't think the Democratic Party has been showing a willingness to go there. Um, when we're talking about completely rehauling police relations. That's a very good point. I, and I, I think what's actually interesting is um, I just I'm continuing with Bill Simmons because yeah. I only get my news from one source. <laughs> um, but no, he had a he had a podcast recently with Michael Lewis, who's a, also has a who also himself has a podcast called Breaking the Rules. This this season he's focusing on coaching. Last season he was focusing on umpires. Very interesting. Um, series uh and i think it's been a really interesting kind of the the allegory that they're using or the the example they're using is they're talking about the president as a coach yeah um and kind of saying you know to paraphrase michael lewis like america is this great team with all the talent and yet they're failing um and using the sports metaphor is like you can have an incredible team with all this talent but if your coach is sowing division within your team and your your coach is not uh, unifying that talent, then they can fail at any level. Uh, and that is kind of, you know, to what you say, like um, the the president can't unilaterally change policing or the law. You know, that takes the entire government and the elected representatives and, and voting and stuff. Um, but a good leader can encourage or discourage activities or can can frame the narrative or help frame the narrative in a way that's helpful or not helpful right right and he, and i mean the interesting point is like i don't support looting or something or looting or like violence but i mean the anger is there and it's showing and it's gonna force somebody to eventually react I mean, if Trump gets reelected, I would put a lot of money on there being either huge racial divisions, that's maybe not a civil war, but God knows what, or something happening. They're well, like, someone's yeah. going to have to respond because of the violence. Um, you know, under Obama and Biden, there's plenty of peaceful protests, and they were able mm-hmm. to quell it, but like, did that squash the anger as to your point no yeah. it kept it under siege because they were able to address case by case but like the interesting question is like do whether you agree with violence or not like is this what kind of politicians needed to see the level of rage and like maybe yeah. just maybe that will get a the d- democrats thinking a bit more radically and like it'll be interesting to see if this forces politicians' hands. I mean, under Trump, who won't, but... Yeah, I, I think back to this, the civil rights movement in the 60s, and I'm not an expert in any way, but uh, I remember in high school, I had a great teacher uh, who's actually, like, a has made a name for himself in the uh, 
um, Toronto community. Like he's he helps run the Glad Day Bookstore, which is mm. a, a gay bookstore in, in Toronto. Uh, Michael Erickson, and I remember he was teaching us American history, and he was talking about civil rights, and that was the first time. It's not like a, it's not an totally out there take, but at the time I was 16, 17, and for me it was a huge deal for him to say, you know, would any of the civil rights had happened, uh, would we have seen this type of policy change and successes if there hadn't been the Black Panther organization? Um, because what you had was, you had MLK, which everyone likes to reference and quote, you know, on Twitter now and talk about, uh, who we have to remember was assassinated. And there's a lot of people who believe that it was sponsored by the government, but that's, you know, allegedly and conspiratorially. Um, but, you know, him, Malcolm X, was also assassinated. And the Black Panthers, many of the leaders who were incarcerated and assassinated. Um, but the Black Panthers were the ones who actually took up arms. And the Black Panthers were the ones who, like, militarized. And they did a lot more, right? They... Uh, they did a lot of really good stuff for the community and like uh, community support, social services, kind of like helping helping out the community, not just with weapons, but one of the things that they really was the cornerstone was that they armed themselves and they, they used those arms as an open kind of expression of like, we're going to protect ourselves, we're going to protect our own. And that was like the first time you saw gun control passed in California when like Reagan was the governor or something like this. And they're just like, oh, immediately we're going to pass gun control legislation. Um, and yeah, going back to like in that history class I took in high school, the argument was was because the Black Panthers exist and because Malcolm X existed, that gave politicians and white Americans this kind of like, ooh, if we don't follow MLK, then things could go way worse. So maybe we should at least listen to this guy who's preaching peace. Yeah. Or even look at Toronto. I mean, BLM wasn't smashing or looting, but they definitely took, I'm not even saying violent, just illegal action. I mean, they blockaded highways. They stopped in the streets. They stopped, stopped the pride. pride yeah. And all those actions led to much more results than any thousand people protest. I mean, when they stopped pride, pride actually cave to their demands yep um i think there was a new instantly almost elected african-american leader at uh the community center i mean a lot happened because of that when they stopped the highway they got a lot of policing reforms so i mean i think you need both but it's just gonna be interesting to see definitely like you know now america knows that this rage is like is is definitely I mean it's stunning to to me it's stunning is I'm we're both dual citizens right yeah but we live in in Canada f for most of our lives almost exclusively but it's it's kind of surprising for me it's like now America knows it's like there was the million man protest led by MLK there were there were protests all through the 60s and 70s now uh I can't like name each and every one but, you know, in the last few decades, we've had lots of protests around civil unrest. We had the Rodney King riots in L.A. because of um, the, you know, VHS video of cops beating an unarmed man. Um, like, it's like, <laughs> I guess for me, it's more surprising is like, when did Americans think this went away? Like, this never was solved. 
all that happens is that like it gets to a boiling point and communities can't put up with it anymore um and they re- and they believe that they have nothing more to lose because of course like when when your community or if i was if we were part of a community that like we were targeted and we knew that if we went out and tried to speak up we could get shot like yeah there'd be a lot of reason for me not to go out yeah. and there would only be once it gets to an to a breaking point that I say, you know, screw it. Like it's either I do it now or I live in fear for the rest of my life or my family, you know, like, so you have to do it. And we get to these boiling over points, but it's, it's just stunning how the rest of America, as we, or we use the term America, like we're talking about what, like white Americans in power or like, you know, um, how they kind of like, Oh, well now, now we realize you're upset. It's like, when, when was this ever not a problem? Yeah. I think it's always been there, but I think because of Trump, you now have white America more actively fighting back. And I think the racial tensions are just like now so out there. So you have this, the the anger that's always been there. And now you have permission for white America to fight back. And so you have two of these just flames going. And that's what makes me, you have two... one obviously I think is justifiably angry, one obviously is not, but I mean, that's why I, going back to the point, you have two sides that are showing visibly angry and like, I don't know, let's hope Trump's not elected, but I really see like, I mean, going to a bit of a different point, like, it'll be interesting, is this, um, is this like, I don't know, I hate using the war word civil war 2.0, but like now you have like a white supremacist movement who feels comfortable and who feels angry and who feels dignified. And remember, part they're part of the looting and riot. I mean, oh yeah, even according to intelligence, they're doing it to try to get police to turn on on the African American community. So you have two very angry people using the same tactics. So well, and there's police doing it to their own yeah vehicles and their own right like there's. Yeah, and not to get too conspiratorial, but like, I can't speak to the the scale, but I think anyone who's, like, to be, to try to be as even-handed and, like, fair on both sides, you know, anyone who's who's looking at verified sources and first-hand accounts would agree with, like, I think all three statements that there are provocateurs in these protests and in all major protests for the last while, um, that there are uh, these provocateurs can either be members of, like, the alt-right or something, or extreme uh, people on the left. Like, it, they're just, like, individuals, because these protests are not unified very much. Uh, they can also be undercover police. Um, but, like, that's kind of, yeah, like, there are people who, you know, of all races and creeds and colors who are looting who believe in the BLM movement. There are people who are looting for unfair reasons and to try to like stoke this like response by the police. And there are police that are like potentially like provoke provoking protests as well. Um, I think where none of us can really speak out is with any veracity is like who's doing how much. Right. But that's what says that's to me what's so scary because yeah. You know, maybe you could address 
one neat, you know, maybe even if you overhaul policing, let's say now you have this white supremacist movement who's trying to encourage it. So I want to I want to step on I want to step to a topic that's been boiling in my mind because it's I've yeah. seen it the last like twenty four hours on Twitter. Um, as I said, I just joined Twitter at the beginning of COVID to try to like feel like I'm keeping up on things. I think the one good thing about Twitter is around like me- protests, uh, keeping news as a primary source in, a, in something as messy as a protest. I think that's where you see Twitter's power, like in the Arab Spring, right? Um, and in now, because you get accountability uh, for, for everyone as, as much as possible. Um, I don't like the rhetoric as much as on Twitter, but there are interesting points that kind of bubble up and then they get retweeted. Um, and one thing that's really interesting to me, and I'm seeing it from left and right wing people, and I feel like to me it's uncomfortable. So I want to talk about it, which is the call to end police unions. Um, and I'm not an expert on police unions in America, uh, but as someone who like considers myself on the left uh, politically, I'm someone who believes in unions. Um, I made a tweet yesterday, which was kind of trying to say like, hey, you know, for everyone who, like we, a lot of people on the left are like, hey, like the, you know, workers should unionize. Like it's important because workers are being screwed, like Amazon workers or, you know, any, any um, low, like um, couriers, right, you know, in Toronto recently. Um, the fact that the police union is so powerful that it's protecting its own people even when they do these horrible things, when it shouldn't be. That, to me, is an example of the power of a union, yeah. right? That it's influencing policy, that it's protecting its own people, even when they commit murder, arguably or allegedly. Um, now, you could say whether or not a union should be that blindly supportive, but at the same time, what, the point that the left usually talks about with unions is that like, you want a union so that you have political power backing individual workers otherwise they're just they they have no power or rights uh, or they can be just taken advantage of and right now we're seeing that the police unions have had so much power that it's part of why they're able to like make politicians not criticize the police or um, protect police who have all these cases against them and etc etc but i'm interested like what you think about that because to me like it's like I don't want to use this as an excuse to be like, yeah, you know what? Unions are horrible. We should get rid of all unions because of police union. Like that to me seems like the wrong way to go with it. Right. So it's funny. I've I come from my dad has been teaching labor law for now over twenty five years, and from a union perspective, so I've always come from a very strong pro union, and I always struggled the same internal debate. Um, like, why are we calling to get rid of unions? Unions are good. I'm very pro-union. Now, the problem right. with... Th- there's two counters. One is that police are... So most workers legally, I don't know the state's law well enough, yep. are not treated as essential workers in a, as a legal category. Right. And just Yeah, like first responders, yeah. cops, there's a few others. Yeah. So it means basically what happens is if the deal isn't come to agreement, they go to arbitration and are going to get top pay and benefits from an arbitrator because of that category, or at least in Canada. So the right. negotiating power on the workers is already there. So without a union, like, I don't know what, like, 
the representation from Merkur changes. So there's a whole legal difference between like an Amazon worker and a police worker in terms of legal um, protection. The other issue, obviously, is as you said, like, I don't know, you know, unions are good in principle, but when a union, you know, is destructive to society, I mean, yeah. That's where yeah. you have to, and maybe the role, the role isn't to get rid of unions, it's to keep them in check. Um, but the problem with the police union is like, you know, they want to strip all benefit, like all funding from progressive community groups. The, yeah. pol the police budgets are so out of hand, they're taking up like over, I think, half the city budget. Um, when yeah. there's police shootings to marginalized communities, the union is like terrible so it's yeah. like what happens when you get a, a union screwing workers in the communities that unions were meant to well i guess the big question the interesting debate yeah i mean the only thing i would po push back at is like how is the union hurting its own workers no, right? right like they're the, not hurting police the union's clear. protecting the police and yeah. i think yeah, yeah uh like any organization i think like i'm a big proponent of balance yeah and i think any organization given too much slack gets uh first you have diminishing returns and then you have like negative returns where like anything that's too powerful is probably going to become cancerous yeah um when you have these police the way that we've been seeing or that i'm I'm seeing these very vague, unresearched, you know, uh, allegedly how police unions have been operating. They have so much voting power because of how th who they back uh, can impact whether politicians get elected or not. Yeah. Um, you know, so they, they influence which politicians are in power and therefore they can push policy. Um, but... On the other hand, that's what we want unions to do, yeah. right? We want unions to be able to to influence politicians. Um, the reason that uh, I think a lot of people on the left and like we talk about like special interest groups and even on the right, like dislike these special interest groups, quote unquote, especially when they're just organizations or, or c corporations that are just like, how do we get more capital or how do we, you know, do this stuff? So yeah, the but that's those represent like kind of the management of the company, and yeah, the management of the company obviously has a lot of money. Therefore, they have a lot of political capital. Um, the point of a union is to give the workers political capital yeah. that they can then fight um, on an equal playing ground with these special interest groups, as opposed right. to just kind of pretend they don't exist. But yeah, when they get too much power. But also, I think like policing isn't progress i mean the clash is that policing right now in its current model mm -hmm. isn't progressive in any capacity and the union came from like a very progressive supporting oppressed um workers model so just a complete clash of the historical roots just trying to get it angled towards you i'm just finding yeah. like is this better it's more that it just wherever you sit is fine uh, okay. <laughs> just trying to get the mic working yeah um it just like think of it like it's trying to go in like right into your mouth because you're oh, kind okay. of talking off center oh, and then, I got you. um okay. but you can move it like yeah. you can angle it any direction so um yeah. yeah so just a complete historical clash of the purpose of kind of the progressive roots of a union of like supporting oppressed communities and workers where the police union 
is oppressing these communities. And like, you could argue poor workers um, based on how they police. Yeah. Now, so you raised the question, is the point, should the focus be on getting rid of the union or changing the police model? Because what if it was a very progressive policing model in the union was fighting for very progressive policies saying, well, the policing should actually focus on progressive, like raising wages to fight poverty and fighting for, that would be great. So I think what's happening is you have a union that doesn't fit the mold of the history be like a bunch of executives forming a union <laughs> um and the right? billionaires union yeah and so it's it's not that you know i tend to agree with you that unions for workers are good it's just what happens when the union is kind of not within the historical trend of why unions were formed and i and i think the solution then is much more structural than getting rid of the union um, so necessarily. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't know. I don't know about the like the central services stuff that you were talking about um, in terms of how that applies. But as someone who, it's easy for me. I guess a lot of people could say because I'm white. Like I want to trust police. I think, like, yeah, I would love police to be, like, a very, like, as an institution in our society, we have agreed in our government and, like, the formation of our society that it's an important institution to have a group of our own citizens that help maintain law and order. Like, that's kind of the definition of police. And, like, fundamentally, that's something we want. Yeah, I'm not one to say we need to get rid of policing. I mean, there are those views that police just shouldn't exist. I'm not one to have. That. Right, and I personally, I don't, I don't believe that. And so, like, I'm kind of like balancing with like seeing, balancing like my kind of objective, like kind of philosophical belief that police, as a social instrument or a social organization, is something we want, uh, and want to support and want to believe in. Um, you know, Jalen Rose says, like, you know, what do you do when, like, you get robbed? Who do you call? Like, you call 911. Like, we all want to be able to call someone. Um, and then balancing that with what we see, um, um, you know, this abuse of power, uh, to put it lightly. I think my, I would push back slightly on the saying that the police don't necessarily need a union because I think, like, the essential service is saying, like, maybe voting for um having an arbitrator and like voting for like s s salaries and wages and stuff they might have more capacity to make those votes but when you have a group of people who and this is something that's like really kind of core to policing like they have the right to violence in our society like they're they're one of the only groups of people who we give a weapon and we let them use the weapon and then ask questions after yeah um and part of why we do that is because we are supposed to train them and we're supposed to do all this stuff. But um, if you don't have a strong union to protect those workers, then anyone who uses that violence that is their right, supposedly, um, to exercise law and order, you know, they could be just used by political powers or by, and I'm not even meaning like politicians, but just by like a, a boss who doesn't like them or um a community who misunderstands what's going on and if they have a big enough voice they could just get a cop fired even if it was very le a legitimate 
use of their power. And I think that's where the police union, I see a lot of validity to it. Um, conceptually, of course, like not necessarily how it's being used, but like, yeah, you need a powerful organization to protect these people who who are literally like making enemies with the community. And even even at the best of times, even at the absolute best of times, they're going to be making uh, enemies because they're arresting people right. and, and sometimes shooting them. And the counter is, though, the police justice. I mean, the counter to that mm-hmm. is, well... Just sit where you want to sit. Sit where you want to sit. The counter to that, that, of course, is the police try justify every use of force possible, and they don't distinguish. And I'd argue, yeah. actually, even in any union, one of I think one of the valid criticisms of unions, and it's always been valid, is that they keep that they try to justify workers who do actions that shouldn't like if uh, in my field I'm a PSW if a PSW if I had a union and they were justifying abusive action I'd be furious at my union and right. I'd say you should not be supporting those and you should let them be fired now it's a it's a it's a hard stance because they're there to protect workers but at a certain point there's you know a moral obligation and so like it's a tricky issue but when you're justifying every use of force or in a general context, ju- trying to justify every worker action, you know, y- you then actually harm all unions because you make them look like you don't have, it seems like you don't have a moral line beyond all workers' actions are justified. Now, that's that, that doesn't mean getting rid of unions, but yeah. it's just like, I think that becomes more an internal deliberation among this is why you yeah, need checks and, and balances, workers, yeah. right? And this, the entire American government was set up with checks and balances because this is what happens with any governance structure, right? Whether it's a union or a government, um, when you have a group in power, then that group can kind of maintain power and um, can decide, you know, I think. But yeah, speaking more to unions, the objective is to protect their workers. And it can that that objective can become blinded, right? And so you start protecting your workers regardless of what they did. Um, because it's it becomes this us versus them mentality where, like, we have to protect our people because everyone outside of us wants to destroy us. And we're going to do this in-house. We're going to solve it ourselves. And, you know, we're not going to let it be decided by someone who isn't us and it doesn't understand us. And when it works well, it, it, it means that you can insulate your people and protect them, like, from being screwed over on wages or working conditions. And when it's bad, you can protect people who publicly assassinate citizens. Yeah. Uh, but I, I guess what I'm worried about is, is, is this call sounds like it could be co-opted by the right and the left or, or co-opted by the right and it's like accepted by the left by saying, you know, this is an example of why we should get rid of unions. Right, and that's the line the left needs to be very careful about, which I strongly agree. Yeah. Yeah. And not, not, but I mean, all that to say, like, yeah, the current state of American police unions is probably something that needs a massive overhaul, just like almost everything with American policing right now, it seems like, in law enforcement, uh, arguably even the court system, but uh, definitely in law enforcement. Like, it's all all messed up. 
Um, so I was just, yeah, I was interested because that's something that I'm seeing is like the next stage of the argument on Twitter is this like, well, what about police unions? Um, of course, there's also the like, what about the militarization of police? But that's just been going on for decades. Like, yeah. It's and that and yeah. that was some of the work Obama was actually finally getting at that completely came to a halt to demilitarize yeah. the police or to give him credit and uh, and yeah. when he was speaking of Biden I mean again it depends how much you want credit you want to give to VP so those are you know I don't know if Biden would continue that work those are some of the differences around policing I mean again no major structural rehaul but uh, again it yeah. depends how much credit you want to give to VP. I guess I, I, I'm guilty of this. Um, so I'm going to say something that like I've, I've yeah. specifically s- been speaking in the way I'm going to critique. Yeah. <laughs> but that we give like way too much credit to the president. Um, and it makes sense that a lot of Republicans uh, and a lot of like certain people in America believe that the president has this kind of unif- unilateral power. Because that's how we talk about the president. Um, when that's never meant to be the purpose of the president. Mm-hmm. And, you know, arguably you could have like really, really progressive policy passed with a non-progressive president or vice versa. Yeah. Because the government is supposed to operate as like these three different pillars and the laws are supposed to be argued and passed by the House and the Congress. Yeah, and the president just signs off on it. Now, be it would be insane if a president was like, "No, I don't agree with this law. I'm not going to sign it." I don't never know about that if that's ever happened. Yeah, the veto power. Remember that the president can veto any bill. Right. I don't. I. I mean, as I don't have any historical knowledge as to whether or not the president has used that. Uh, they threaten veto. So what? What often happens historically? I'm sure they have used it. I just couldn't give you an example. There is recently the FISA bill, which is the basically the police ability to surveil on people that bill expired and they have to pass a new one and the house was about to vote on it yeah and trump called this whip and said if this passes i'm gonna veto it so the whip quickly called all republicans and said there's no point of passing this because trump's gonna veto it mm-hmm. and so they all voted it. so nancy pelosi pulled the vote from the house because it just wasn't going to go anywhere. So I think presidents sometimes... Threaten their veto. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure they've used it. I don't know, but they, I'm sure all the time will call whips and say, hey, like, uh, to the senator, you know, House, like, if this gets to my desk, there's no point. And so then there's no point of Congress passing anything that's just going to be vetoed. Right, so that makes sense. That's how. To an extent. I mean, if, if I were to... Like, my knee-jerk reaction in, in counter to that is, like... I think there's political legitimacy in having the people's representatives vote through something and force oh, the president to veto it, regardless uh, of what you believe in in the bill or the veto. Oh, I 100% agree. You know, make the president have to have to do it, and that way that'll affect their next election or or how you know. Actually, Trump's vetoed a lot. He's vetoed um. He's vetoed a few things where they've tried to control his ability, uh, military power on Iran, for example, <laughs> um, after he was threatening a lot of unilateral action. Mm-hmm. And they tried the, there is a rule you could override a veto. I forget how many votes you need 
Mm-hmm. Um, you need a law. It's I maybe like a super majority. Yeah. Or something like that. Well, maybe even more than two thirds. I'd have to look it up. But the Senate fell just short to override the veto. So he has vetoed hmm. a few things around his use of military power. Hmm. Um, so those are a few examples I can think of off the top of my head. Hmm. So it is probably happens more than we think. Yeah. It's very interesting. And, and yeah, I think we're in a very weird place kind of coming back to where we started is like, I don't see the most depressed side of me and pessimistic side is I don't see how Biden stepping into the presidency or Trump stepping in the presidency. And if I want to go even further and be more pessimistic, I don't see how Democrats taking over both houses and this and the presidency and, and controlling all three branches of the government. I don't see how that necessarily changes these fundamental issues. And I think that pessimism comes from what you were talking about earlier is the, the, the Democratic Party hasn't shown a willingness to embrace these revolutionary, not re- I mean, it's the wrong word, but like very progressive, like changes. Yeah. Um, I think they're still centrist centrist party i think what it would do though is like at a minimum send a message to white suit they would at a minimum try to flame down these you know let's they would try to stop getting us back to the civil war movement so i I mean it's crazy to say that's like what we're aiming for i mean it's very depressing don't like that we're trying to be like what we're trying to get now back to the point where like white like you know like white power kkk can't be on the street like openly and like that being socially acceptable and they think they could just openly start a movement but i at least with biden in a democratic house controlled i think they would pass laws around i mean they've tried to pass laws around these kinds of things i mean so i think that i still fundamentally agree yeah like issues of policing and the bigger issues that the african-american community are pissed off about won't get resolved but i think the racial flames that trump have stoked in that kind of rhetorical stuff i guess my fear is that like since the 60s i don't know of any american government that has like has labeled the kkk and these white supremacist groups as terrorist organizations but like you know, Antifa supposedly was just, now that's like very much knee jerk because it just happened. But like the way that the government has like labeled and chooses to ignore different groups, like the way that the FBI targeted uh, Black Panthers and the way that a lot of these Black Panther leaders were killed by police in shootouts, like, yeah. you know, in their bed and it's like, like really f- messed up. Um, and these are going through both Democratic and Republican yeah. uh, governments and yeah. presidents. So, yeah, I would ag- I would agree that like the, the rhetoric would change if we had a Democratic-controlled government and president. But my concern is like, would okay. they actually say that like this like w- what would be the actual change in policy to to uh, try to prevent these like nationalist uh, raci- racist groups or to protect and like uh, support people of color and, and right. marginalized peoples, or would it just be the the rhetoric to calm people down and stop rioting? Right, like, and I I spoke to someone 
years ago when Trump was just elected and they were like fairly left wing from Texas and they specifically said they voted for Trump because they thought that that would expose more of what's actually going on than what Hillary would have done. And they didn't they didn't like Trump as a leader, but they were like, at least what Trump's going to do is he's going to just make it all exposed and then we'll be forced to face what exists underneath the surface, regardless of who's president. Um, And I guess that's the big question is like, yeah, unarguably Trump is stoking the fire. Unarguably Trump is doing horrific things. Uh, My concern is how much would still be going on were he not president. I know a lot of things that happened under Obama that the left doesn't like to acknowledge or talk about in terms of how he utilized the military, how he utilized, um, you know, surveillance and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, like, we, we kind of, on the left, we like to ignore that, or people who like Obama are like, well, that's, you know, but anyone would have done that. It's like, okay, but, like, if anyone would have done that, like, what's, when, if ever, would that change, right? Right. Oh, no, and I agree. I mean, I, I mean, fundamentally, as, a, as I've said and will always say that, the Democrats are, you know, they're a stat, status quo party, and how long can that last for? It's like maybe we'll find out soon. A legitimate question, um, and yeah, I wish you know as mu- as much as I fight for Biden, it's only because we have the scariest president in history. Um, you know, I wish the Democrats would. You know, be much more open to the structural change that needs to happen. And I, I agree, Democrats are too often, and this is where I disagree with Simmons about it's an American issue. Democrats, like Republicans, are too afraid to challenge their own party. I mean, look at what Clinton did. He passed two of the most disastrous bills you could ever argue for mm-hmm. poor people and uh, black people, the criminal reform bill, which Biden supported and now says he regrets, and the uh, um, welfare welfare reform bill, which was a compromise to be fair to Clinton because they're in a stalemate, but it's really screwed poor people. So, yeah, the status quo isn't definitely great for marginalized people, and I certainly think that party politics. I mean, I'll preach this every second I can. It's the big problem in Amer- in America because. Both Democrats and Republicans are too afraid to criticize their own party when they're in power because the goal is to hold power and not to necessarily and create th- yeah. a better structural change society, but it's about power. Well, I think th- th- that's where we kind of dovetail with the union discussion, right, is party politics and union politics are the same, right? It's like us versus them. We'll protect our own regardless of how much we agree that there might be a problem, but we don't want to open ourselves up for attack by saying that our side was wrong in any way. You know, and that's what the union does, and that's what the parties do. And I think not just America is subject to this, but Canada as well. You know, the way that a lot of Canadians vote liberal as opposed to NDP, as an example. Um, Because NDP can't win, and therefore we vote liberal. And therefore, the liberals get in, and it's like, but liberals are just playing the center line, and you know, you get this, or the, you know, it's 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 very weird when when you're when it becomes the party politics thing, it just becomes 
kind of are you behind this party or not it doesn't really have to do with what the party is saying it doesn't really have to do with the policies that any of the representatives are espousing um it's just have i always voted or do i vote this way or that way like just justin amash got criticized trump and trump just tweeted him enough that he had to become an independent because he wasn't going to win as a republican in his riding so like yeah if you speak out against your own party and canada's actually on that end worse i mean republicans can't kick you out of the party i mean they can pressure you but in canada the caucus can actually just completely boot you You just crazy you don't even like so you really can't speak out in canada so it's like yeah it's a completely like and that's why to me i always push just like like i've always put that question out there party politics it's the messiness of not having party politics better than like the organized system of party politics because i think at least the blind power and just like but there's obviously a debate of chaos versus organization yeah i mean i i'm a big proponent of I, I need to learn more about this, but I'm a big proponent of the idea that party politics came at a time when technology existed in a certain manner. Um, and I guess we adopted our party system based on the British system in Canada here. And the British system, I'm not exactly sure, but like the House of Lords, I think, existed before the Parliament. You know, so like, and then the Parliament... I think the idea was you get a party so that it's easier to unify your um, your position. And they kind of say, like, well, I'm, you know, like, you can, it's like being sponsored by Nike, basically. It's like, I like, or being a part of a sports team. It's like, I like this player, but, like, he doesn't play in the majors, or he's not, you know, not a Nike guy. Or like, I, I only trust this brand. And, like, political parties were the first brands he's like well i'm a part of the labor party i'm a part of the liberal party i'm a part of the conservative party like okay well i know that brand i believe in like the objectives of the brand and therefore i don't have to spend as much time learning about my individual representative um and i don't have to kind of say well i like i like representative a in my riding but I know that he's just going to flip because he's a liar. And Representative B, I don't necessarily like as much, but I know he's steadfast and represent Like, that would be a lot of work. Whereas if you just say, like, well, Representative A is brand A and Representative B is brand B, and I like brand A, so I don't really care about the individual. I want to support the party. It makes sense to simplify. But we have a different technology stream as well right now um, with social media and Twitter and even television came in the last little bit when you compare it to the history of political parties, you know, and radio is younger than political parties. Um, so we have the capacity and we've had it for a hundred years to, to relay, um, the objectives of a politician that you're voting for. So it is kind of weird that we, we still just go to this brand issue and that parties aren't even, broken up um you don't even have like i mean in in canada i still am 
it took me a long time to figure out, and I'm still kind of like not that clear about how you have the federal NDP and the federal liberals, and then you have the Ontario liberals, the Ontario NDP, and the Quebec uh, liberals, and the Saskatchewan liberals, and NDP, and like, and all these groups are different, but they're also the same. But like, the NDP from a province is not the same as the federal, but somehow they're the same name. Like, but the name, but it, it's, but like, the difference isn't in their name in a weird way. Uh, that to me is like almost false advertising in a weird way. It's like, oh, we're just going to like, we're just going to piggyback off of the brand power of this other group. It's like saying we have Coke and then we have Coke Plus and we have Coke Zero and like, but it's all Coke. <laughs> like, even if, yeah, but as long as it's not Pepsi, right? Like, I don't know. It's kind of strange. Um, yeah, so is there any, any other thing that had been on your mind with like what's no, been going on? No, it'll just be interesting. It's uh, Yeah, it'll be... I mean, yeah, I'm just curious, scared. Yeah. S- you know, very afraid, very afraid, but also curious. Like, part of me thinks this is what's needed. Like, this kind of like... You know, while I'm scared and, like, angry, part of me thinks, like, this kind of was needed. And, like, you know, the other interesting question is, like, we always say, like, America, America, America. Mm-hmm. Because this, I mean, Canada is a bit more of an equal society, but these issues exist, especially with policing. I oh mean, my God. there's much more inequality in America around poverty, but poverty exists. Is this just an no. American issue like are these protests eventually coming to canada the and poverty like and inequality in canada exists in the first nations largely oh right yeah. but it's massive massive and massive. so that's also another interesting issue but like part of me says this needed to happen and like mm-hmm. you know i d- do i want a civil war i'm not saying that needs to happen or like do i want you know like ronnie king style things no but like i don't know as you said it's insane america didn't realize this was going to happen and so part yeah. of me says okay if you're not going to see it like it needs to happen and now you need to deal with it so i'm curious to get your take on like the next four years the next presidential term or so next one or two presidential terms being you could focus on canada or america or you can focus on the world or like you know whatever you're thinking but like your projection being optimistic or pessimistic um, you can start with one and go to the other as to like, what do we see the outcome, right? We're f- three, four months into COVID lockdown. It's obviously starting to, people are just starting to give up. Um, official restrictions are shifting in different places, but like for the most part, people just can't stay in anymore and isolated. So even the best of us are trying to like figure out safe ways to get around things and to to start seeing people because we're a social species um hong kong has been like kind of after a year of protesting china's kind of stepping in um no there's a lot happening in the world and as we started you know america's burning um so yeah where do you see things going like in the next five eight years so on the pessimistic side, would if Trump gets elected, I, it's like it's a very scary world. I mean, honestly, I <laughs> on the extreme side, I could see something as extreme as like a, a literally 
a borderline, like not a military coup. I think America's military is too entrenched in government, but like a a, a, a street like revolution and like listen, violent uprising. It's almost happening in the White House. I mean, like Trump had to went to his literally went to the basement barricade where they hide people for nuclear bombs. I mean, and that's I think yeah. under Trump gonna get those kinds of protests are going to get worse. So it'd be interesting to see if like does Washington, do people try to like storm the white house? That's a real possibility mm-hmm. or maybe, you know, complete like racial unrest. Um, I mean, I, that to me sounds like it's just a prediction in the next month, right? Let alone four years. That's, um, you know, and if on the f- optimistic side, well, Biden, you know, I never loved, I agree with, Koi, there's going to be a lot of issues and like it won't be a radical overhaul I I think we get by it and I think maybe just maybe on the optimistic side of that the Democrats finally wake up and say we need something more than the status quo, but I often get this optimism with peaks and then it crashes. <laughs> um, so it's like so hard. I try to hold optimism so often, but like I just don't know how the Democrats ignore this rage. Um, yeah, I don't have faith in Biden, like being, uh, you know, whether we want to call it revolutionary or structural change candidate but i also can't see like you know something like the people storming the white house with biden um <laughs> i so right. i i just don't think the reaction of the people is as extreme right um now saying that if biden doesn't do anything to change the solution which is your worry and doesn't show at least an attempt to get some structural change yeah i think even then you know the the more left and like the poorer BLM, more mar- marginalized, more radical African American movement, um, and younger movement, not the older. I think the older generation has proven to be a bit more conservative. Starts amping up the a their ta- tactics and be the level of protest against the Democrats. Right, and maybe you know Biden survives, but they'll be forced to change because they're going to be dealing with a very l- different level of protest if they don't. Yeah. I, I mean, I think what's clear is no matter what, that the marginalized, poor African-American community and BLM will not stand for status quo. I mean, I don't think they'll storm the White House over Biden, but it's kind of, I think one is whether there's real chance of like radical revolution versus just I mean, like reform is another word for it, right? Yeah. Reform. I think from yeah, f- my my sense of where things are going is like there's there's a few levels to it. I think I would be surprised at this point if America ever regained global dominance. I think I think it's done. I think we're. I think historically we're going to look back at this period and we're going to say like we're already in the beginning of the downfall of American global dominance. Um, we had it since probably the 40s, 
where America was like the number one like leader of the free world and all that stuff. And you could argue whether or not it was happening before Trump came into office and whether it would have continued to happen if Trump hadn't been in office. But I think what Trump's done in the last three years, four years, um, and what we're seeing happen right now is, yeah, I don't, I don't think America is, is any, any longer a, a viable leader for, you know, progressive values, liberal values, freedom even, um, this sort of thing. I think it's, it's a deeply divided country economically and politically. Um, it still has a huge number of rich people in it, but so did England when America seceded. <laughs> you know, we have, there's wealthy people in America. There's a lot of smart people in America. Most of its wealth and intelligence and economy is based on immigrants. I think if they continue to fight the idea of immigration, it's, I think it's living off of this idea of this, like this brand, America's living off this brand of like, hey, we'll help, it's a great country to come to, it's free, um, there's opportunity, anyone can become successful. And right now everything that's happening is hurting the brand of opportunity. And it's like, no, even if you come to America, you still don't have opportunity. As soon as that becomes the belief, then people aren't gonna fight to destroy their, you know, to uproot their families and leave and come to America. They're going to go to other places, Canada included. We're already seeing uh, an upswing in um, people coming to Canada for grad school, you know, ever since Trump was elected. Um, so we're getting more, you know, professional graduates coming into Canada. Um, and these are the types of people who help move the economy forward and, and that sort of thing on an individual level. So I think, I guess the question for me is, how do I take that? Because that, that's something I just kind of believe straight up. Um, optimistically, I think what we do, what we see is that opens the door away from this hegemony where whatever America says is the rule and you're either with us or you're with the terrorists, right? Like it's, it's no longer just America or bust. Um, we have more potential to have conversation, especially among the countries in the West and hopefully share leadership and share uh, objectives with you know EU and America and Canada and Mexico and hopefully you know more and more countries can communicate and and talk about what we want to do and create um, kind of global vision I think the, the negative side of that or the pessimistic version of that is China's really aiming to be in power right now I think or Russia I think China has a lot more capacity personally because I don't see Russia as having continuity beyond Putin in the same way. Um, I think Russia is a country that's controlled by a strong leader, and when that strong leader loses, then there's going to be, like, upheaval. Whereas China's operated in this black box method with the party where we don't really know who's the single entity controlling things. Um and that's a part of their strength is that it's this like kind of unified voice of the party, which means that individuals can come and go and there can be political unrest, but it's all behind the scenes. And the party has a unified voice. They've, for the last while, they had a one-year plan, a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, a 50-year plan, a 100-year plan about how they were going to move forward. And no democratic nation has a 100-year plan. And China's had that now for over a decade. And 
they can, you know, when you start working towards a hundred year plan, you can lay the seeds very early. Um, so my pessimistic side would be that China becomes the next political world leader and they don't have human rights. You know, they don't have the types of things that America says it has. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if America didn't have a constitution with human rights instilled, these protests would be very different, right? Uh, protesters wouldn't be going out pretending or trying, depending on how you view it, to be nonviolent because they know that they had every right to be shot by the police. So you'd very quickly go from no protests to armed violence because if you're going to protest, you might as well do it. I think Hong Kong is a little different scenario because they're in a place in China where technically the China's not allowed to be policing the way that it would on on mainland. But anytime there's mass protest in China on mainland, it's just disappeared. People get black bagged, they get disappeared, and they get killed. And that's that's just that's what happens in an authoritarian government. And uh, I would be scared of of any authoritarian government. I'm using China as an example to to gain world dominance. Um, if you want to take a step 10, 20 years further down the line, India, with its pu population, has the potential to kind of step from the shadows into dominance past China. And, and they have the nuclear capability. In India and China both have nuclear power, for sure. But India has a huge population. Uh, it's a government that was created by Britain, largely, like the, f the structure. Um, their current leader, from what I've heard, is like fairly scary right-wing uh, nationalist. So, you know, any... That's the sad thing about any democracy is that it can become fascist. We saw it in World War II. Um, any democracy can become a fascist state. But the structure in India is, is one of democracy that is supposed to give people a voice in policy and they have a massive population um but i think the way that we in the west have looked at europe since the war in our lives and we don't even remember the cold war but the way that i think a lot of america and canada was like oh the old world the west you know like they were all these kings and then they kind of like fell apart and there was this revolution and then we were a splinter from them and we are the new the new world I think that's what the next generation is going to be looking at America as. Is, oh, America was this big dominant force, and then it kind of self-imploded, and then, like, w we learned about entertainment and about corporations and about capitalism and democracy from them, and we splintered off and we made it better. And I don't know who the we are in this situation. It could be any country or a group of country or... If I were to go the most extreme, I think we might see a full reform of democratic processes. And I don't know how that would look, and that's an extreme take. But I think that would be the most extreme. Uh, and I could see it happening in the next 10 years. And I think that's my biggest fear and hope at the same time, is like we could have massive upheaval in the next 10 years, and maybe we need it. I mean, to finish off, because we've been going for a while now, I think the biggest thing that concerns me and also you you said earlier is like well it's kind of good that we're having this now like the, like we should be having these these are discussions that are like way overdue they need to be had we need to start dealing with solutions 
um, as opposed to just ignoring them or silencing is climate change is still real. Like climate change is still happening. We're still seeing the effects every day. Um, we're still mostly ignoring it. Uh, we're in our thirties. We're going to be living through this, especially like the next generation. Um, and if we can't unify like a global procedure of how to find uh, a vaccine for COVID and like how to work together between countries to find a vaccine and how, how to develop a, a vaccination program and a manufacturing and supply chain plan, which we don't have a global plan. Um, how can we come up with a global climate change plan? Um, and I think that's where the there is the need to unify politically around the world or at least be able to communicate in a way because otherwise I don't see how we're going to be able to, to solve climate change. And climate change, we're going to see millions, hundreds of millions of people. Like we think this is a big deal with COVID and like being locked down, but we're we're going to have hundreds of millions of people moving because of climate change. We're going to have hundreds of millions of people starving or, um, you know, without water because of climate change. We're going to have regions flooded. We're going to have all this stuff. And it's going to affect, like, probably everyone. And how do you, how do you, we have no plan. <laughs> we have no way. Like, we're not, we're not even talking about it. Um, that is my biggest concern. Is like looking at all this stuff, and this stuff is like four decade old problems we've ignored, of like social inequality in America, and now it's coming to this. But it's like, but we we realize we have these, like, what happens if and when the sea levels rise? What happens when you have like four Hurricane Katrinas in one season? What happens when the South becomes literally uninhabitable because you will get a heat stroke if you're outside, and just die? Because or what happens when crops fail across the entire, you know, region? Um, the Dust Bowl is something we forget about, right? But the Dust Bowl in the 1930s were like entire section of Western America was literally dust, and like so many people starved in the Depression because crops were failing, and like, yeah, that could happen again. Like, what do we do? Right, but I would argue that like environment, you know, I think. One of the appeals of Bernie is his argument that like all sorts of justices are interlinked. So like inter environmental justice is linked to like racial justice, which is linked to inequality, which is linked um, because guess who's most impacted by climate change is poor yeah. Flint, Michigan. Yeah, they didn't have working water. Um, and like to just say that's just an issue of bad infrastructure maybe but like climate change plays a role so like yeah yeah we need to address yeah. climate change it impacts the whole world but it's not well, i guess my concern with climate change issue. is like like climate change we get like for the last many years we've all seen today was the hottest day in the last hundred years like today this summer was the hottest summer in the last on record or this was one of the top three hottest days. This is one of the top coldest days. Any time of year, like summer, winter, you had these like, this was the most extreme this ever in the last 200 years since we've been following or, or tracking this. 
Um, those are like kind of examples, and we have you know this much is melting, and this you know this glacier in South in in Antarctica, the size of Manhattan just collapsed, or whatever. Like all these things we're seeing, um, but even then, none of them are as immediate as watching a cop kill a civilian, an unarmed civilian, and so at the end of the day, it's easier to, to get an emotional reaction to injustice like that yeah. than it is to get an emotional reaction to instill change for something as vague as climate change. Um, especially when people are spending millions and billions of dollars to like create science papers that deny it yeah. and all that shit. Um, so yeah, I guess my my concern is like if we can't, they're all connected. But if if we can't even get together and agree on how to discuss or how to solve something that's super obvious, like missing Indigenous women in Canada, or you know First Nations, uh, the quality of First Nations um, in Canada, and like we talk about Flint, Michigan, but there are many First Nations in Canada that have had no clean water and boil advisory or mercury in their water for longer than Flint, oh, Michigan. For sure. Right and like, but Flint, Michigan is in America. Therefore, we talk about it, and it's also like a city. Um, this stuff is like very obvious. It's very in our face, and if we can't even acknowledge that, um, I'm concerned about how do we acknowledge something that's more vague, like climate change. That's that's where the concern comes from. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's 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 terrifying. It's terrifying, and it's. I guess the weird thing is that, I don't know if you agree, but there is like a kind of kernel of like excitement. Oh, for sure. I mean, like activism always brings excitement. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was like around me, you know, the uh, the first of energy around the women's movement, both in the came to Canada was incredibly exciting and there's a lot of talk about like women in politics and stuff the question is does it sustain the problem with a lot of movements these days is they have these you know mm -hmm. week or three month first and it, i'm not saying the feminist movement is dead but there is you know mass hundred thousand protests every day you're not seeing that anymore um you're not seeing them in the streets anymore um so the it's exciting i but as I say, I, I tend to get optimistic and then these things pitter out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, but I think I think it's a different kind of rage. And and uh, that's what is well scary, a bit more exciting. But, yeah. you know, this happened. Our friend Simon brought up a point like this happened after Ferguson and that died, too. So it's like, yeah. I mean, maybe if tr on the optimistic side of Trump getting elected, honestly, maybe Trump gets elected. I don't see this rage really dying with Trump tweeting <laughs> to say shoot protesters and yeah. and let's make Antifa a terrorist group and protesters like your city's weak for not arresting everyone. I think any tweet he sends is just getting yeah. the violence is getting worse. So maybe the only optimistic side about Trump versus Biden, if Biden would quiet it down, maybe where Trump would just have fully inflamed and it would create the kind of pro sustained protest instead of these free That will impact protests. change. And yeah, I listened, to a I listened to a podcast a while ago. It was very long and I, I, I wasn't able to listen to the whole series, but it was about the French Revolution. Um, 
so shout out to the French Revolution podcast and whatever that, you know, uh, terrible sourcing. But I think the most interesting thing about it that I was realizing listening to it was, was how we think of the French Revolution like there was a king and a queen. Marie Antoinette said, let them eat cake. And then like they brought out the guillotines. They stormed the palace. And that was it. Like, and then they kind of installed a new government. When in actuality, it was like years of protest, counter-protest, political move, counter-move, um, trying to set up a government, a counter-government. Like, there was so much movement and so much unrest. And a lot of similar names kept popping up in, you know, uh, over time. Uh, a lot of people were in like one thing and then kind of died down. A lot of things were quelled. A lot of things succeeded. A lot of things failed. But this was, it was a lot of unrest for years. And we historically now 200, 300 years later are like, yeah, that was, there was this revolution and that was the end of it. Um, and so I guess that's where like, part of me is like, oh, this has that feeling of, yeah, like this could either just be another protest and we ignore it, or like this could be kind of a larger thing. And I, I think of like, what was it like for a, for a middle aristocrat living in Paris or in France? Because I know a lot of the aristocrats were poor um, in terms of their actual capital. They just had like, they had family wealth and they had access to, ca uh, to credit. You know, like, so what was it like for these people who didn't have much power, but were watching this unrest and being like, oh, there's a lot of like unhappy peasants who might kill me. Like, oh, um, and I think a lot of, for lack of a better word, a lot of white people and a lot of middle class and upper class people look at this unrest. And at first it's like, yeah, this is a problem. And then when it gets too real and it gets too close and it starts damaging like their communities and their businesses they start going like oh well this isn't you know it's not me like are you sure you like i'm not a part of the like i'm not the king of france like i'm not trump like but that's also kind of like the only way that the french revolution happened was like you have to tear down the structures of power yeah and i guess just to conclude but what shocks me about the republicans is like if they don't want this coming to the white house doors and massive structural change like how do they not realize him inflaming it is going to lead to that like that's kind of like the crazy thinking like like if i were to the right i'd be terrified of trump tweeting incendiary things because like as i said there's a history of these things like ferguson being short-lived if mm -hmm. if there's proper leadership and messaging and it's well, just mm -hmm. like it's like kind of weird to me to think that they either they're oblivious to the consequences of no. what this could lead to or it just like to me if i were a, re a, a like staunch republican capitalist this response to me would be terrifying because this is what could lead to the end of like a uh, the current system well actually i would so, like, i would respond by saying like like the reichstag right like there is a lot of political value in stoking popular response to the point where you can respond to it with violence and with state-sanctioned violence, right? Like, uh, I think a lot of Republicans could be convinced and are, you know, a lot of extreme right-wing people on Twitter are definitely saying this, so I don't want to put it the mouth, put words in the mouth of 
Republican representatives who have blindly supported Trump for years. But um, like, yeah, let's let's crack down on these on these protesters who are ungrateful and destroying our society. And like they're they're destroying they're destroying our society. They're destroying their own community. They're destroying businesses. Uh, we need to protect businesses. We need to protect the economy. Um, these people are just criminals. And there's a lot of reason why those people might believe that to begin with. And yeah, look, they're destroying, they're attacking cops, they're doing this. Like, therefore, um, we're going to like instill martial law. Therefore, we're going to like require uh, ID checks throughout checkpoints. Like, we could, we could become way more of a police state. America could become way more of a police state um, because of what's going on, right? And so to fuel this further, and then you give, you give rationale to the argument of saying, let's make this a police state. And part of the benefit of a police state is that you don't have to actually care or listen to the people who you're policing. So I, I would, I mean, that's very pessimistic, but that would be my, my response as to why, why no one's speaking out against Trump. There's also this side of like, no one's spoken out against Trump from his party ever. And those who have were like, you know, pushed out. Um, why now? Why would they speak out now? Right, I guess because this is the, right. just quickly because this is the first time Trump's had to hide in a bunker because the protests have come so close to the White House. I just you're so it. quiet. I can't. I don't oh, think we're picking anything up. Um, because this is the first time, literally, the protest has come so close to not the White House doors that he's had to hide in the bunker and assistance and such serious crisis of. Yeah, I mean, you know, the first time withheld martial you know military support to an ally the first time like each time was the first time that was obscene and each time they just like showed that they're going to support it i think a big thing for me as well as interesting is like when i've looked at history about like the kent massacre the kent state massacre that we we both looked at a conversation about this earlier this week um there was a period in the 60s late 60s where America was talking and you you interview people and you see in documentaries and they're like, yeah, like we were, we thought we were on the verge of civil war. Like there was all these protests against Vietnam and there was all this student uprising and like, you know, da da da. And a lot of right and left wing people were like, yeah, it was scary. Like, and I've heard it more from like the government and saying like, yeah, we were worried about insurrection. We were worried about civil war. And you're like, that's silly. Like, come on guys. Like this was, they're just fighting for their rights. Um, but there were armed cops like in DC after the Kent state riots, like outside the white house, you know, like they were ready for this stuff and they were scared about it. And I never understood it until what we're seeing right now with these kind of protests that are spreading and going across American cities for the last many days where it's like, Oh, I get what they meant. Like, yeah, this is getting this sense of uncertainty of like, well, where does this go? There's so much energy and there's so much disruption. Who who utilizes that to political for their own political gain or who catalyzes it to the next step or who sets it off even worse or you know there's so many ways this like we see all these cops attacking protesters and I'm just waiting for the video when when protesters respond and attack the cops who are attacking a protester and it becomes very violent or what happens when a cop shoots an unarmed black guy 
and then someone in the community shoots the cop right there. Like, if we keep rolling the dice, I don't see why that wouldn't happen in a, in an armed population like America. Um, and the question is like, so if if and when that happens, like what then? Like, what do cops do when one of their own is shot? What what do you do then? And that's ignoring the the prov the provocateur provocateurs who are just sitting on the sidelines, literally saying like, "Bring your guns, let's get ready, like let's ins like let's push this civil war." So it's kind of crazy. So, yeah, you know, for everyone who was like upset that we weren't living in the exciting '60s, like, well, welcome, you know. <laughs> We're living in it. We're we're now in an exciting time. Like go out there and protest and <laughs> hashtag BLM and call your representatives and I don't know. Like this is a time where it's a big opportunity for everyone, I guess, to be a part of change. Um, whatever change that is you want to see. Yeah. Thanks for joining me, Zach. My pleasure. Uh, for coming down the hall to to my <laughs> room. Uh, it's a big step. I know. It's a mission. Yeah. Um, I think we should continue doing this. I personally find it very cathartic to like. Yeah, no, it's always great. Talk this out and uh, put it out there publicly for for the police state to use against us <laughs> yeah, in the yeah, future I'm when sure, they crack down uh, on we'll be liberal as thought. A terrorist group. Yeah, we're because like we're both American citizens. So that's that true. Law applies to us, so yeah, we well, may not be able to enter America after today. I mean, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not necessarily with the with all the people online who are saying I am Antifa. That's <laughs> I don't know if oh I yeah, am for Antifa. For the record, America government, I am not Antifa. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I'm Antifa. I think I dislike I'm a democratic socialist, not Antifa. Yeah, yeah. I think I I dislike fascists. <laughs> I'll put it that way. I I for the most part would oppose Nazism. I don't know if I would go under the moniker Antifa. But that's just me, you know. I'll hey, I'll be careful how I frame it, Donald Trump and president. I'll reframe it once he's out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, you know, this is the beauty of like. Uh, I also think it's important for us to like kind of sp whether we're speaking to a podcast listening audience of zero, <laughs> or or you know on Twitter or anything. I think it's important for us to stand behind what we say. Um. As opposed to kind of anonymously, there's power in anonymity, but I think it's important for us to kind of speak publicly and kind of say, "Yeah, this is what I believe." Um, cancel me. <laughs> I think we're already canceled. This is the thing; like, we don't exist. We have zero audience. So, this is just you know, for anyone looking back when we become someone worth listening to, you'll find this in like the year 2030. Um, I hope this was a wonderful little time capsule for you. Uh, okay, great. Yeah. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, hashtag Black Lives Matter. Um, that came out a bit uh, satirically. I didn't mean it that way. It's okay. You can edit it out. That's true. Okay. <laughs> if you hear a little blip, like a little edit, that's, that was me being very sincere. Okay. Um, thank you for listening, everyone. And uh, we'll come back whenever we feel like it. That's how this podcast works. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Nothing wrong with one, but the best things come in two.